Jeremiah chapter 40. We are moving well along here into the last part of of this great prophecy that we have been studying over the last couple of years, I think. Could be longer. But uh, after tonight, uh, we'll have 12 chapters to go. So that, that sounds pretty good. Jeremiah chapter 40. Let me read verses 1 through 3 as just an introduction. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has Pronounce this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice. Therefore this thing has come upon you. Now if we take the simple phrase, after the fall. And let's say we take it and apply it to certain circumstances. And we'd be amazed as to how many situations it could pertain to. After the fall, for instance, if applied to the seasons, after the fall comes winter. A time of coldness and, for the most part, deadness. Many things like trees and plants will lay dormant throughout that season until spring revives all things again. Should after the fall pertain to some sort of tumbling or stumbling, we would probably point out certain consequences, such as a scraped knee or elbow or something far worse. But biblically speaking, after the fall reminds us of the consequences that Adam and Eve would face for their disobedience to God's command. The expulsion from the Garden of uh, of Eden to face the labors of a cursed world leading to death. After the fall, in a similar fashion, would also lead to describing certain conditions after judgment. After judgment itself has been rendered, whether to an individual or to a nation. And this is where we could ask the question pertaining to our study of Jeremiah's prophecy. What happened after the fall of Jerusalem? What lessons were learned or not learned from the destruction and devastation of the holy city of Zion? Well, in answer to that last question, obviously, not many. Not many lessons were learned. One would think that the fall of Jerusalem would have would have uh, Judah uh, a lesson that she would never forget. But by recording the events that happened after the fall of the city, Jeremiah demonstrated that the basic character of the people who remained in the land never really changed. They still refused to trust in God or even to submit to Babylon. Now think back for a moment at all of the prophecies given toward the end, right before the siege of Jerusalem. And how many times Jeremiah had said to the people, Submit, be taken captive, submit to Babylon, and you shall live. How many times? So, consider then the message given by the prophet Ezekiel to those who remained in the land of Israel expecting an end to the Babylonian captivity. Here we'll hear the words. Ezekiel himself, in chapter 33 of his prophecy, just a couple of books later, in Ezekiel 33, verse 23, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. 
Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood, you lift up your eyes toward your idols and shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abominations, and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? Say thus to them, Thus saith the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall befall by the sword, and the one who is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. How similar to Jeremiah's prophecy, you see. Verse 28, For I will make the land most desolate, her arrogant strength shall cease, and the, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. And so one of the most important lessons, and let me say that one of the most important theological lessons that we will learn in this considerable passage that begins here in chapter 40 and goes on to chapter 45, six chapters. The theological lesson is that disobedience leads to judgment. Disobedience leads to judgment. So with that in mind, go back to verse 1 of, of, of Jeremiah 40 and, and let's read on past through verse 6 now. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from uh, Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, I want you to listen carefully to what this Babylonian is saying or what this Chaldean is saying to Jeremiah. He says, the Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. Now he's not saying it directly to Jeremiah, but he is speaking to him. Why? Because he said, you know what, I understand you're the one that gave this prophecy. And this prophecy came to pass. Your God is punishing his people. And then it says, because you have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. Verse 4, and now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. Now just remember that he had been released from prison by the Babylonians. Somehow he got mixed up with the people going to Babylon. He got back in chains. And now uh, Nebuzaradan is releasing him once again. And verse 5 says, Now while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people. Or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. That's, that's pretty free. I mean, he's, he's pretty much said, Well, go to Gedaliah because that's where he was supposed to go, the, the new governor that was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. But he says, But if you want to go somewhere else, then go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. And then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mizpah, uh, just north of uh, uh, Jerusalem, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. So go back to uh, verse 1 and consider this first phrase of verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah. What does that imply to you? The word that came to Jeremiah sounds like uh, uh, very much like the formula that is used to announce a prophecy. But no prophecy follows. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it suggests something, though. It suggests that the next six chapters, uh, 40 through 45, was the word given to Jeremiah to record the disobedience after the fall of Jerusalem. We remember that Jeremiah had been given his freedom. After the Babylonians had taken the city, just go back one page to Jeremiah 39, verse 11. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and uh, 
and look after him and do no harm to him, uh, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent Nebuchadnezzar, Rabsaris, which is his title, Nergal, Shazar, Rab, and all those Rab mags, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. And then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Now, our text shows, again, that Jeremiah got mixed in with the captives who were being prepared at Ramah for their long journey to Babylon. But he was released by Nebuzaradan, who happened to show a surprising familiarity with Jeremiah's preaching. Again, remember what he says to Jeremiah. He is, in fact, saying, your God has brought this upon his people. The captain of the guard told Jeremiah that he was being released, after all that he said, because he had told the people that the Lord would judge Judah if she rebelled against the Babylonians. And now the Lord had fulfilled his word. He had destroyed Jerusalem due to the people's sins and disobedience. Now, it is interesting how Nebuzaradan had a better perspective. Now, take, just, take note of this for just a moment. Nebuzaradan had a better perspective of what was happening than did the people of God. Isn't that an interesting thought? Nebuzaradan, the, the, the Babylonian captain of the guard, had a better perspective of what was happening than did the people of God who were being taken captive and being taken to Babylon. I'd like to say that that's unusual for that to happen. But unfortunately it isn't. The world does take note of what happens to believers in God and in Christ. And sometimes they have a better perspective. You might remember what Pontius Pilate said of Jesus after his examination of the Lord. In Luke 23, verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, after this examination, I find no fault in this man. But what was happening outside, outside of that little place where Pilate and Jesus are face to face? The crowd being led by the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are crying, crucify him. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. Wouldn't you say that Pilate had a much better perspective of Jesus than the religious leaders of Israel had of him? Didn't the Roman centurion have a better perspective of Jesus than the angry mobs of people who were cursing Jesus on the cross? Listen to what we see in Matthew 27, 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened... They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They had a better perspective. It is so important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to live the right kind of life and to give the right kind of perspective to the world about Jesus than be on the other side and letting the world, by looking at us, say what, it, what really is the truth. We have, to, we have to give the better perspective, not the world. But when the world begins to have that perspective, that means we're in trouble because we're not where we're supposed to be. Where was Jerusalem? Where was Judah? They were in captivity. They were silenced. They were humiliated. They were shamed in defeat by Babylon. And they were getting ready to be taken to Babylon for 70 years. Well, getting back to Jeremiah, he was given a choice by Nebuzaradan of going to Babylon and being taken care of by the king. Because he said, listen, when I, if, I, if you go with me to Babylon, I'll take care of you. I mean, they, in a sense, the Babylonians really loved Jeremiah. Why? Because Jeremiah kept telling them, you're going to get defeated. 
kept telling his people, you're going to get defeated. And Jeremiah wasn't saying that because he was a, a traitor to, to Israel. He was saying it because God was saying, tell my people, because they have disobeyed me, they're going to be defeated. And they are going to be taken captive. But they, they like Jeremiah, and so they said, well, you know, you come with us to Babylon, we'll take care of you. Or if you want to remain in the land, you can take care of the people, which is what he's going to choose to do. Because Jeremiah certainly had a shepherd's heart. He had a pastor's heart. He loved his people. He loved the land. He loved his God. And so he chooses to stay and to dwell among the people. And being a shepherd of God's people, it had its rewards as well as its risks. As Jeremiah lamented earlier on, if you remember back in Jeremiah 17, verses 16 through 18, Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says, As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. Let them be ashamed to persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. He says, I have stuck with these people. I haven't hurried away from them. And once again, we see that very same heart in Jeremiah at the very end when already the captivity is going to be taken to Babylon and there was going to be a, a, a remnant left in the land. And who was the remnant? We learned last time the remnant was the old people, the sick people. And Jeremiah said, I'll stay with them. Gedaliah, that's been mentioned here, was the appointed governor by Nebuchadnezzar to be in the land with these people. And they were going to take care of the land. And they were going to do, you know, the, the vineyards and also that the Babylonians who have stayed behind in their new land, which they have, they have conquered, would be taken care of. And in so doing, the people who are there are going to be taken care of as well. So mutual, uh, you know, they, you feed us, we'll take care of you. And the people said, we're going to do that. But Jeremiah, getting back to him, he was a true shepherd and not a hireling. I think that we can see that in, even in the struggles that Jeremiah had. But, but he, he's not like that hireling that Jesus described in, in, in John 10, verses 12 to 13. But a hireling, he said, He who is not a shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Jeremiah certainly cared about the sheep. He certainly didn't run away from his people. He stayed at his post as God gave him the words and the wisdom to say to his people. And, and then on top of that, he's not only uh, you know, facing the Babylonians just like his own people are facing them, but he's being arrested by his own people because he's giving a prophecy that they don't want to hear. So to some extent, he's being hated by everybody. And you think that if he was hated by everybody, he didn't want to stay around. You don't like me? I'm out of here. But that wasn't Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, I'm sticking here because this is where God called me to be. Where has God, got, where has God called you to be? And are you sticking to it? Are you staying where God said, I want you here? It's hard, Lord. That's okay. I'll be your strength. What did he tell Jeremiah? They won't touch you. I'll protect you. I'll keep you. But I have you here. You do as I call you to do. You stay where I call you to stay. I mean, he might have been more comfortable in Babylon. He would have. Why? They liked him. The Babylonians liked his prophecies. We're the winners. He said so. And even before we won, he would have been comfortable in Babylon. But it doesn't make sense to a believer, does it? To be comfortable in Babylon? Babylon is not where God called us to be, spiritually. You go through the scriptures, you want to be in Babylon? You're going to be in a lot of trouble. Babylon is not God's land. I mean, in essence, everything is God's because he created it. But we need to be where God wants us to be. For 70 years, he would have his people in Babylon for one reason, to discipline them for their disobedience. 
So Jeremiah chose not to be comfortable in Babylon, but to remain in the land of his fathers. You think about the children of Israel having come out of Egypt, having come out of 400, you know, whatever it was, 430 years of, 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 uh, of slavery in Egypt. And they gather together. Moses comes and he takes the people out, takes them out into the wilderness. And not very long after he, they get, finally get away from all of that, that uh, uh, slavery and whatnot. And, and God's, you know, said, I'll provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. But as soon as they get out into the wilderness and they see some sense of, of problem arising, they say, what did you do? Bring us out here to kill us? And they murmured and they complained and they murmured and they complained. And it brought to mind a song by Keith Green way back in the 70s. Do you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure? You want to go back to, you know, to have, you know, because you want to eat the, you know, the leeks and the onions and all of that kind of good stuff. All the flavor of, of Egypt. But what was Egypt? It was a type of the world, a type of sin. All we get is manna. All we get is manna. Well, you make your manna burgers and your manna patties and your manna this and your manna that. But God give it to you and it's good stuff. But they got to complain. So we go on. We're not to be comfortable in Babylon. By the way, living in the world right now is like being in Babylon. We're not to be comfortable here. Why? Because it's not home. Where is home? Home is with God. Home is in heaven. Home is in the kingdom of heaven. Home is in the kingdom of God. We can't wait to get out of here. We're just passing through. This isn't home. All right. Enough said. Now, as in many wars, scattered remnants of the army often still remain deployed in the field after the surrender of, of the main body of troops. The main forces of Judah, located in Jerusalem, Lechish and uh, Azekah, had been crushed. They had been uh, beaten and destroyed. But groups of army officers and their men were still scattered in the open country. So that's a lead-in into the next passage, verse 7. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah the son of Ahikam governor in the land and had committed to him men, women, children, the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon. Then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael the son of Nethaniah, Johanan and Jonathan the sons of Korea, Sariah the son of Tanumath, the son of Ephtai the Netophatite, Netophathite and uh, Jezaniah the son of Machathite let's see Machathite uh, they and their men a lot of funny names hard to pronounce and uh, Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan took an oath before them and their men saying do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans now listen to what Gedaliah is saying do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans by the way the Chaldeans are the Babylonians that's, that's just another name Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. What does that sound like? It sounds like the prophecy of Jeremiah. If you will submit and bow to them, you will live. Then he goes on, As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you, gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and Dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom and who were in all the uh, countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set over them Gedaliah the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. It was there for them to do so if as long as you served the Babylonians, as long as you gave them what they wanted, you were alive and you were living and you were doing pretty well. You were eating and you were drinking. So first came the good news, you see. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam and grandson of Shaphan, was now in charge of affairs uh, in Judah. And he, and he was a good man from a good family. 
But as we shall see, he was somewhat naive about politics uh, from the practical sense. That's where the bad news will start. But Gedaliah told the people exactly what Jeremiah had been telling them for years. If you serve the Babylonians, you will live safely in the land. And even though the people couldn't reap the harvest of grain because the fields hadn't been sown during the siege, they could gather the produce that hadn't been destroyed during the war. So that's what was actually left after the Babylonians had come and gone or were getting ready to leave with the, uh, with the captivity. Now, the remnant that was to remain in Judah had to follow the same instructions that uh, Jeremiah gave the exiles in Babylon. Live normal lives. Now listen to this. Live normal lives, turn to the Lord with all your hearts, and wait for the Lord to deliver you. Live normal lives, turn to the Lord with all your hearts, and wait for the Lord to deliver you. Let me read that to you, Jeremiah 29. This was the word to those who were going to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. What is that? Live normal lives. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take your wives from the sons, uh, for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. Live normal lives and turn to the Lord. For in its peace, you will have peace. In its peace, if you do your part, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners. Remember, they had their own prophets and their own seekers who are doing what? They were telling them, oh, listen, you know, we're not going to get destroyed. Everything's going to be okay. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to Ezekiel. Don't listen to Daniel. Don't listen to these guys. You know, whichever other ones at that time. But he says, don't listen to them. We have our own. So he says, uh, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So God told them then to make the most of their difficult circumstances and in the midst of the severest trial imaginable, after they had lost everything and been deported to a foreign land, they needed to be a strong testimony for the Lord. Although they had not been living for the Lord, it was now time to settle down in exile, turn back to God and earnestly seek Him with their whole heart. And so getting back to chapter 40, this was essentially the same message. Well, even while they're living there in Judah, dwell, you know, live, live normal lives, turn to the Lord, and, uh, you know, trust, trust in the Lord, wait for Him to deliver you. Because remember, if you're living in the land of Judah, who's in charge? The Babylonians. So wait for the Lord to deliver you. So after laying out these terms, Gedaliah challenged the resistance fighters, which were the, arm, the ones that had been left of the armies that had been destroyed. Uh, the resistance fighters uh, were challenged to return home, help rebuild the farms in the towns of Judah, <clears throat> and he offered them to, the right to settle in any town that they wished. The resistance fighters found these terms acceptable, and uh, word of, Ge- of Gedaliah's offer began to spread. So that's where we see that soon other resistance fighters and Jewish refugees uh, began to return to Judah. Refugees from Moab, from Ammon, from Edom, and the other countries to which they had fled all returned to Judah and began to settle down. They were even able to harvest an abundance of grapes and other crops that had not been destroyed during that Babylonian invasion, as I mentioned before. So they immediately began to rebuild their homes, their businesses, their local communities. The Lord had promised a future for the nation because the nation had important work to do. But here's where things began to break down. Look at verse 13. Moreover, Johanan the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalis the king of the Ammonites has sent Ishmael the son of Nethaniah to murder you? Now remember that Ishmael is actually uh, an Israelite, or you know, it's, uh, 
He's from Judah. He's, uh, he's one of the, one of the uh, soldiers uh, and captains that uh, were coming back. But notice now that the king of the Ammonites is actually hiring, as it were, Ishmael to murder uh, Gedaliah. So Johanan has heard about this and tells Gedaliah. But notice here, but Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. He didn't believe that that would happen. I mean, this is one of my, my uh, Judean brothers. So I can't, I'm not going to believe this stuff about, you know, an Ammonite king hiring, you know, telling him to come and kill me. And then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah and Mizpah, saying, let, let me go, please, and I will kill Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of, uh, in Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to jo- uh, Johanan, the son of Korea, You shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. Now, Ishmael had at some time previously been connected to, uh, first of all, he's from a royal family. He's actually, as mentioned, as a, a part of a royal family. He would then be part of the, the line of David. So this is one reason why Gedaliah says, well, that's not going to happen, what you're saying. So Johanan was afraid that if something happened to Gedaliah, that this would cause more problems with Babylon and, and, and what few people were left would all be wiped out. Perhaps Gedaliah thought that Johanan was just jealous for some reason. Perhaps he thought it was just a vicious rumor. You know how that goes. Perhaps he thought that Johanan had some old, long-standing grudge against Ishmael. Whatever may have been going through his head, there really was a lot of political intrigue going on here. Why would the king of Ammon, by the way, why would the king of Ammon conspire with Ishmael to kill Gedaliah? Let's, let's consider that. Well, the answer lies in understanding the relationship between Judah and Ammon. Now, both nations were vassals to Babylon and had participa- uh, participated in a secret meeting of nations in 593 B.C. to evaluate their prospects of uniting in rebellion against Babylon. Now, you can turn back and compare uh, chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, if you like, uh, concerning that uh, uh, uniting uh, uh, between uh, Judah and Ammon. That meeting did not produce any definite action. But in 588 B.C., Egypt's new pharaoh, whose name is Hophra, persuaded Judah, Ammon, and Tyre to revolt against Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had to decide which nation to attack first. And, and we have to realize that God directed him to Judah instead of to Ammon. Now, if you want to kind of get a little picture of that, read Ezekiel 21, verses 18 through 23. We have time to go through all of these passages, so just write it down and look it up. But Judah and Ammon were still allies when Jerusalem fell. And Zedekiah was probably heading for Ammon when he was captured. But in spite of their union as allies, Judah and Ammon, of course, if you know the history of the Jewish people, they did not care for each other. Judah and Ammon were vicious enemies at other times. Their union was a marriage of convenience. Ammon rejoiced over Jerusalem's fall because she knew that if Nebuchadnezzar committed his army against Jerusalem, he would not be able to attack Ammon. So thus, Gedaliah's commitment to Babylon was, was unsettling to Ammon. And if Judah did submit to, to Babylon, then after Nebuchadnezzar fi, uh, finished his siege of Tyre, which we can read about in Ezekiel 29, he would probably attack Ammon next. But a destabilized, destabilized Judah could force Nebuchadnezzar to commit large numbers of troops there to maintain order, which would improve Ammon's chances for survival. So it was to Ammon's advantage to replace pro-Babylonian Gedaliah with an anti-Babylonian leader like Ishmael. So we can kind of see, you know, these little political maneuverings that are going on in this story. Now the sad fact is, The sad fact is that Gedaliah did not believe these officers, 
with you know Johanan and his brother Jonathan. Even with Johanan meeting privately with Gedaliah, and even offering to kill Ishmael, planning to do it secretly so that no one would know who was responsible, and all of this for the good of Judah. But Gedaliah's flaws were twofold. Gedaliah had two main flaws. First of all, as I said before, he was just naive about political wrangling. He was naive about all of these connections that were going on. Second of all, he was not discerning enough to surround himself <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> with a group of loyal men who could guard him day and night. I mean, most kings would do that. Most governors would do that. Always had someone protecting him. He did not. He trusted these people. They were, they were Jews. He trusted them. That would have sent a message. If he had surrounded himself with guards, if he had surrounded himself with people that were loyal to him to protect him, he was going to send a message. That would have been a message to Ishmael that the governor knew what was going on. And it would have protected his life. We're not going to see much of that. I'm getting ahead of myself in telling the story, but we'll see it in chapter 41 what happens. But, but um, it brings to mind this proverb. Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. And Gedaliah just, you know, was a very trusting old soul. And yet, he was putting himself in harm's way, even in the midst of his own people. Now, in a very practical and spiritual sense, there are going to be times that we are tempted to give in. There are going to be times that we are tempted to give in to the lusts and the passions and desires of the flesh. And there will be that still small voice telling you not to be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't go in that direction. Don't do those things. Don't even think about those things. Move away. Run away as fast as you can. Get away from those temptations. Get away from those feelings. Get away from those emotions. Get away from those passions. Get as far away as you can. The still small voice of God speaking, saying to you, you can't play around with sin without suffering grave consequences. And we need to heed that. If that is the case, we need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul who tells us to mortify the deeds of the flesh because its only goal is to destroy us. See, we sometimes think that the only enemy we have is the devil. The Bible is very clear that our greatest enemies are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Those are our greatest enemies. So what does Paul tell us in Romans 8? I want to begin with verse 12. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul is drawing a very grave distinction here, a very serious distinction. He says, We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now keep that underlined in your Bibles. Now the encouraging word that, give, that, that Paul gives is as he goes on in verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed <clears throat> we suffer with him, 
that we may also be glorified together. So, rather than trying to live according to the flesh, according to the passions of the flesh, according to the lusts of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, as John describes in 1 John chapter 2, which actually takes us all the way back where? To the garden. And the three things that were, that were uh, decisive in, in the temptation given by the serpent to Eve, the fruit that was beautiful to look at, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the taste, the succulent taste of this forbidden fruit as it were, and the pride of life, the fact that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. Why? Because that was the deception. That was the lie given in the garden. It began with the, with, with the question, did God really say that? Did God really say that? He didn't really say that. He calls God a liar. The serpent does. But then he says, go ahead and eat because then you'll be just like God. God doesn't want you to be like him. So if you eat of the fruit, you're going to be just like him. You'll get to know. You'll have this great knowledge just like God. But what did the devil know? What did the serpent know? That Eve should have known, and more importantly, that Adam should have known, and Adam should have told Eve, hey, get away from there, fool. Was that the serpent was the liar, and God was the truthful one. Because he says, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Her flesh, her eyes, and the pride of life is why we are in a cursed world even still today. Why there is so much evil, so much wickedness, so much perversity all around us why we need to take heed to what the gospel says, why we need to take heed to what the word of God says and to what the spirit of God says to us. When we're in situations just like Gedaliah, being in a position where he's making these decisions naively. And there's that that voice saying, listen, these guys are going to kill you. They don't like the way the situation is set up. Maybe Ishmael was given some mercenary money to get you killed and given, given the promise that he'll be the governor of this land and then, you know, we'll have what we want, being the Ammonites. Ammon is not, you know, is not a type of, 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 of spiritual good. Ammon is just like Babylon, just like Egypt, like we said before. Ammon is a type of the world. And a type of, the, of, of sin, a type of the flesh, a type of the enemy. But was there any discernment? Was there any real seeking after the face of God, listening to what God was saying? What does it take? I know I've probably used this example a thousand times. And you've probably heard it 999 times. But there's that guy that uh, during a flood is sitting on the top of his house and praying for God to save him and rescue him. And the water is really about halfway up the, up, up, up the side of the house and this guy in a boat comes by and and he says, hey, listen, you know, come on on the, on the boat. He says, oh, I've been praying God's going to, you know, for God to come and get me and, come, you know, come and save me. A little while later, the water's really up, up to the top of the, of the roof where he is, and he's kind of standing now on whatever he can find as far as dry 
uh, roof and, and then another b- bigger boat comes by and more people are in it and they said, uh, you know, come on, jump in. And he says, no, God's going to save me. I've been praying. A little later now, he's he, he's got water halfway up his body and a helicopter comes and says, you know, here, hang on and we'll get you out. He says, no, God's going to come and save me. Eventually he drowns. Goes to heaven, stands before God, and he says, God, I prayed, asked you to come and save me. He says, man, I send you two boats and a helicopter. Why didn't you just get on one of them? What does God have to do? What does God have to do to get our attention? When we are in positions of grave, grave consequence. When we are in places where we could take one step and be so so destroyed because we have acted upon the flesh rather than by the spirit I know I've kind of carried that a long way it was a short chapter I'd have finished with something but I think it was important I think it's important for us to be reminded what God is wanting to say to us and how we are to live the lives that God has given to us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are subject to temptation. We are subject to the wiles of the enemy. So why are we constantly told, you know, to stand fast? Why are we told what what, uh, Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the armor of God? Because we have a tremendous... A fight with a battle not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual, uh, against uh, spiritual wickednesses in high places. Turn there for just a second, Ephesians chapter six, and we'll close with this because it's so important for us to realize. We've been talking about what happens after a fall. Paul writes what he writes here in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 and following because he doesn't want us to fall. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, how many, notice how many times we're told to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins uh, girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So not only for us, but even for each other. Brings to mind again, Johanan coming up to get a lion, saying, hey, listen, I've heard that there's a plot against you. They want to come and kill you. Listen, I'll go out there. I'll take care of this guy. Nobody will know who it was. And, you know, problem solved. But we have to first take on the armor of God ourselves. Why? Because the enemy is after us. And I believe that the closer that Jesus Christ coming is, the more he's going to be wanting to destroy us. So my encouragement to you, my encouragement to you, is to put on God's armor. Be serious about what God has said in his word. Don't let the enemy deceive you. God gave us gifts. And in the gifts that he has given us, he gave us the gift of discernment. We need to begin to utilize the gift of discernment every day. Being able to discern what is right, what is wrong, what is good, and what is bad, what is evil, and what is not. What is spiritual, And what is satanic?
spiritual in the good sense of the Spirit of God and knowing what is different between that and what is satanic. The Satan is out to deceive. He's not out to come. You know, he doesn't want to scare you in a red suit with a big long tail and a pitchfork. That's not how he does it. He's too cunning. By the way, the, the scripture says that the enemy also can, can masquerade as an angel of light. Be careful. Well, I said we were going to kind of close there. Just one more thing. Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Just go back one book. Galatians chapter 6. Because remember that we are not only to put on the armor of God for ourselves, but for each other. In verse 1 and verse 2, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fall with you, which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Do not be deceived. Notice this. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There's the flesh again. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So let God be your strength in the days and times in which we live. And let's remember that even after a fall, it isn't all destruction. After a fall, there can be grace. Because when we fall, we can call to God. We can call to the Lord. The Bible tells us that when we stumble, He's ready to pick us up. He's ready to lift us up, put us back on our feet, and establish our steps once again. If we will surrender to Him. If we stumble, He will pick us up. But then we've got to stay on our feet. That's standing. Stand. With the armor of God on. With your eyes open. With your spiritual life continually being awake and vigilant. Because the coming of the Lord is that near. Let's pray.